RA Exchange. Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the Exchange's senior producer. For the 700th episode of the RAA Exchange, we're happy to showcase a guest episode, the first of a three-part series called Women on Wax, an alternative history of Detroit techno. Produced and hosted by the co-founders of Blueprint, a Detroit party and crew comprised of Alana Greenlee, Janissa Nelson, and Crystal Mjolnir. It traces the history and legacy of the Black women vital to the city's musical trajectory, but who are often omitted from its story. In this episode, the women of Blueprint interview DJ Minx and DJ Scent to begin tracing the female-led collaborations that made Detroit House and Techno what it is, and simultaneously course-correct a long-standing gender gap. Through the course of the hour, they talk about the late artist Kay Hand, living in Detroit in the 90s, amplifying other women through local projects, forging their own sound in the era of dance mania, and how together, as a group of women, they earned respect from their male peers and the scene at large. I'll leave it to the Blueprint team to introduce their episode further. Thanks so much for tuning in. Without further ado, here is the first episode of Women on Wax. My name is Black Moonchild. I'm AK. I'm DJ Anna. We're co-founders of Blueprint, a Detroit party, crew, and ongoing music experiment. Over the next three episodes of our takeover, we're going to attempt an oral history tracing the legacy and underreported impact of Black women at the heart of Detroit techno. In the three decades between DJ Meeks' historic Women on Wax and Blueprint, what have we heard? First, let's define Detroit techno, or really, undefined it. Rather than sticking to a strict technical guideline, we want to examine the culture of DJs, producers, and party throwers surrounding dance music in the Motor City. From the minimal sound of Robert Hood to the funkified force of Norma Jean Bell, if they're playing it in the clubs in the 80s and the 90s, we're counting it. Generally, when people speak about Detroit techno, it's described in waves. From underground resistance to the rise of contemporary labels such as Dirt Tech Rec, the generational swells, while tricky to nail down, are apparent. The first wave being the Belleville 3 in the 80s, you are in the 90s, and so forth. As we speak, the fifth wave is actively happening, y'all, and we really want to challenge and course correct the gender and sexuality gap in our music. While we're all aware of the misogyny in the music industry, this impacts our reality as a lack of mentorship and connection with past generations of women who came before us. And in this industry, success is a deeply personal thing. And we've researched metrics such as record sales, tour dates, festival appearances, and prestige opportunities to make our argument of what it is. And what we found is a staggering erasure of women in Detroit, both on a local level and a larger industry level. 
It is our belief that women, especially Black women, don't fit so neatly into the narrative of the waves. And to really understand the foundational ways that they have impacted Detroit techno, we want to trace the legacies of artists who have influenced us to provide a guide for our peers and future generations navigating the industry. For this first episode, we're going back to the 90s. The new dance show was at its peak. Techno was taking off in Europe. And in 1991, DJ Scent got a pair of linear tech turntables and a Gemini mixer. In the 30 years since, the DJ, producer, and radio host has played throughout the U.S., holding it down in Detroit with residencies such as her infamous nights at the Post. Primarily on the gay circuit, she flew under the techno radar while building a loyal following in the ballroom scene. had no idea about you guys. UFO Factor, the first time, I'm like, what is, hold on. I'm like tripping on the music y'all kicking. I'm like, what's going, okay. We didn't have all that. We didn't have those opportunities. It was, I come out hanging out at a club called Tides. Really, my first club was Famous Door. Way younger than y'all are now. But, you know, the music's what I heard and brought. As B.B. King was really the first female that really hired all of us from this point on, but you never hear her name. You understand? And so Serena Tyler came in, then Stacey Hale, then a lot of other people came along. And so it was a big journey of a lot of different women who don't get named for whatever reason, sexuality, where they clubs they may have ran or what type of situations they were in. But that doesn't change the narrative of what they brought to the table to get all of us what we're doing today. Somebody brought all of us somewhere. But for my knowledge, B.B. King was the source of all of us getting started in getting club gigs for females. And that's a, a, a black gay lesbian sister. That's why you don't hear about her. I get introduced to Tides. Tides was another, to me, another level. Basically two floors, old bowling alley. So we danced on the old bowling floor. Wooden floor, sound systems. We get into that too, of life. That was the difference too of the older clubs. They had sound systems. When you were up in those, baby, your clothes was doing like when you go moving. So you had no choice but to dance. So I get there. We partying, baby. We rocking it out. But we always think about clubs. When Ty's clothes, I'll never forget, lying wrapped around the building. Oh, it's going to be another Ty's. They're going to open. They're going to go down the street, find another. But we ain't not ever again. And so you never really think about the clubs that we had that don't, no longer exist that really were my part. I was, I came out as a club kid. You know, my parents was disco. We, you know, we got the bar in the basement. You know, we drinking and having fun and listening to them playing 45s and records all morning. And so that's my life. When I got a chance to come out into a club, I just wanted to dance. And so that's what I did for years. But I continued to buy records because that's what we did in my era of growing up. So I got 12 inches for days, you know. But then all of a sudden, I get to the club and I see Kelly Hand. What you doing at Zippers? I said, what's she doing? She got these two turntables. Now it's music continuous. She got, I said, okay, Kelly, I'm like, I need to get some equipment. She said, well, I tell you what, if you get some equipment, because I know you're not, I'm going to come and help you out, hook you up, get you some sound. I said, really? You serious? She said, yeah. I said, okay. A month later, I had a pair of linear techs. 
not even 1200s, and a Gemini 19 inch mixer. Got it in. Who I'm calling? Give us a hand over here. She comes, woman of her word. She shows up, gets me some sound. Man, she's like, you got records? I'm like, girl, yeah, I've been buying records. For said, okay, well, you already halfway there. Man, <laughs> show me what I need to do, put two beats together. Took me eight months. I don't know how long it took y'all, but it took me eight months to come out of my basement and to start really playing in front of people. The first thing I started doing was Philadelphia Street Parties. That became legendary in its own thing. And I realized then, I was like, okay, I can kind of make some money off this little hook up here. So here comes the post. Went to the post, did a cabaret for a friend. Big room, just a huge room. They got the cabaret hook up with all the tables and chairs. I said, no, we don't need all that. We need this whole floor. So what I did, took all the tables and chairs, moved them out the way, just lined the wall with chairs. And it was just a big dance room. I would go up, put up disco lights and hang up fabric, three, four in the morning. Oh, my God. All of a sudden, you're getting two, 3,000 people coming. And from 1997 until really 2005, Fridays was my thing. As a late night party, you were coming to the post. It was about dancing, you know, real talk. And it's, you know, it's just a lot going on now. But back then, it's about heavy systems. That's what I really, really miss. It was a duty of a club to outdo each other when it came to their sound systems and lighting. So you got the full experience for $5. Now you come in clubs now paying $20, $30 and you may get a bold cocktail and you're like, what we doing? Okay. So I'm just, you know, what we doing? Now house of yes was one of those experiences recently that was like, wow, over the top performers, folks swinging all up. We don't have, we, we need that. But back in the day you had that. And the, the sad part about it, it was pre phones, pre a lot of videos. I, that was one of the worst things I thought about for the post. No videos. I know documentation is show someone say, oh my God, we had, I'll never forget we did a pride. And like I said, it wasn't, the, the post was not gay straight. It was house. It was about dancing. But I'll never forget we had five runways. People were walking a runway, five different ones. In, in the one room, it was something I had, would never forget. Because people embodied the music. When you see some of the, the ball scenes now, that comes back from the House of Charles, back from the, a, a movie called uh, Paris is Burning. These were real houses back then. So now you, you start to see it in today's society. But to live it, to be in it, to actually see these guys engulf this, completely speechless, completely speechless. But I, I wish that we could ever just like I said, bring some photos back, especially of Club Heavens. That was one of the major clubs that influenced me tremendously was Ken Collier. Dwayne and Mitch Bradley. I have to put Stacey Hill there. Serena Tyler. Oh, Jeff Mills, which is, was back then, a.k.a. The Wizard. At that time, record labels were producing house dance music. All your artists, from hip-hop artists or R&B artists, singers, every record basically came out with a dance version. So what was the record pool? I never got involved with record pools, I'll be honest, because I was sort of an independent. But a lot of people did. It was a, a gateway of people getting together. But it also kind of played its own dividend of who became a big artist. So if I want to push Janet, you know, we go get Miss Janet up to the, the, the billboard charts. Then we go talk to the DJs and send them the first copy before everybody else get them. And radio played a huge part, which has changed for today's culture. 
record stores, mom and pop record stores. Big shout out to Record Time, who's no longer here. And so we had a huge dance room. About the size of this room, you'll walk in, it will be 12 inches all around the wall. And we would go in and pull records all day. And that's where we go play. All of a sudden, you saw half the wall gone. Now we got hip hop. All of a sudden, the dance room is closed. I'm the second generation after the John Collins and the Stacey Hills and the Serena Tylers. So when I came out, they were already established doing their thing. And I sort of snuck in. And I don't think I would have been welcomed if I hadn't snuck in. You understand? And it was just what it is. And so, like I said, once again, when someone shows up, you take away somebody's check. And so I came in as sort of a force in taking over. It's only really two women I can think of at the top of the history, B.B. King and myself, who actually came and took over a black male gay club scene and took their men and came to my establishment for a female to be the headliner of, you talking about sometimes three to 4,000 men in a room for gay pride, there's the DJ set, which you'll see sometimes today. Maybe some of the bigger festivals and as you get play, different places, but back then that was unheard of. Males dominated the male scene. And so, like I said, from 1995 to 2005, I ruled Fridays when it came to especially the LGBT community, but everyone, black, white, Chinese came to the post because that was the spot to come. And it was such diverse music. So when you talk about the post and Club Heaven and some of the places that you visited coming up, when you started creating your own space, I remember back in Durham, you would tell me about that subwoofer wall. 1A and those hotel parties that you used to throw Woo! back in the day. Yes. And what it was like curating your own experiences. I started working at a club called Alvin's, which is now Mr. Tony V's. And it was a Monday night. And when I got there, they, they weren't packed. You know, nice little crowd. But all of a sudden, you start to notice this building is full of people. I took a bartender to rec- make me recognize. He said, man, he said, since you got here, this place is swole. And I was like, Really? He said, they're coming for you. So I said, let me see if I can find a space. And like I said, I did a cabaret for a gentleman's party at the post. I said, man, this is a beautiful hall. Time for the post. Off of Gratch and the Harper. I said, this is a great space. I said, let me see if I can get this spot. So I tried to get it every week. Couldn't. So I started doing it every other Friday. Well, you know how that is. That's bumpy. People coming when you ain't there. So eventually it took about seven months before the post became fully available. And once I got it weekly, people thought it was just going to jump. It didn't. I almost went broke. (laughs) You know, but I had a vision that I know what I want to do for these parties. I know what people deserve. I did it because I could control every aspect. I don't want to come to a bar and you tell me, well, this is what you got to play. I want to make sure the equipment I go on, and I don't know how to make you some money, and you can't buy me a new mixer. I don't want someone to be the dictate to me how this is going to turn out, but you expect me to give all my effort to the people who are paying you $10 or, or whatever your fee is. So if that's the case, I don't need a middleman. If I'm going to take a hit, because if it's bad, it's DJ Sin's problem. If it's good, it's DJ Sin's problem. It all comes back to the DJ back then. So it didn't matter who the promoter was. They come to see me. I, I have no problem. So if I'm going to have a problem, I'm going to get paid to have that problem. <laughs> I didn't really understand the, the, as they call it, the hateration until I stopped doing clubbing and got to radio and then started trying to reach out and get back into clubbing 
Well, I'm thinking I got cool. Well, we cool. We, you know, you can't be mad at this industry if no one calls you to give you a gig. No, I owe you anything. And so I had to come to that same realization. I've been in the gig for a long time, but that doesn't mean Scent deserves a gig. Scent still got to work to get hers just like the y'all you do too. So what do you provide? So I'm always looking at angles as how can I do something different, but on my own, you know, because as you know, when you start doing stuff on your own, that money is way different than when somebody hand you an envelope. I'm going to leave that right there. <laughs> when did your company, Vision Productions, come about? That was a part of the post era. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, I had a partner um, that we went in and just thought it would be something. I didn't necessarily wanted people to really know it was my party or her party. People knew. But you kind of want to go behind the scene. And so then we used the Vision Productions, sort of the, the behind the scene sort of thing. Tiffany was my, my, at that time, my partner, but she was also my manager. She's taking care of all the people, getting everything together. Where I'm, My only job at the post was to play music, which was, you look back now, you, you couldn't have it no better. But she handled everything in the issues, security, money. It was all on her. Making sure the kitchen ran white. It was all on her. Since you go up there and play for eight hours. <laughs> I've done so many different parties. But um, the post was really my long-standing club life. And, but like I said, it was after hours. We ran 11 to 6 a.m. in the morning. So people talk about when I post sometimes how they would come out the club and there was sunlight. And, you know, you don't do that now. Where are we partying like that now? <laughs> well, Yeah. I was about to say that, like, um, there isn't nightlife that goes until 6 a.m. here. Like, it just isn't really as prevalent as I'm sure it was back in the day. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a, a, back then you had, such, like I said, weekend parties seven days a week. Ty's biggest nights were Wednesdays and Saturdays. You had other clubs that had Mondays and Tuesdays. And you had, it was, it was seven days a week you could party back in the day and hear house music and dance. And so, but it was a preference of DJs. The pleather of DJs was phenomenal. I always want to attribute the AIDS epidemic, which a lot of people don't talk about. I want to say around the maybe early 90s to 95, 96, AIDS took out all my male friends. I club with over two, 300 males, and there's only two living today. And so AIDS was huge in the movement of how music changed the sound because a lot of your producers back then were gay. I mean, if you lose most of your gay, gay influencers, then who is left as your heterosexual influencers? And so there's a lot of homophobia, a part of house music and dance clubbing. There was a divide there. And so when you lose a lot of your troopers who could fight back and say, hey, I don't want to, it can't be this sort of way because we're here. They were your executives. I mean, the ladder of, of the gay males in the business between billboard writers and reporters all the way down to who played on radio and who was the radio producers, program directors. We're talking about gay, 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 gay. And so when they all started dying, other people filled those voids. And so now we're not doing house no more on the radio. This club can no longer have a gay night. And so it just changed the narrative. I'm not knocking any of that because everyone had to make their swivel and change and, and go their own and find their own direction. But I thought that even still today, there's still a narrative of there's still a divide. So when you talk about going from clubbing to radio back to clubbing, I want to circle back and ask you about your show Club Insomnia. So Club Insomnia was a 
breed off of the Saturday and Friday night house parties that were going on from the 80s, maybe even the 70s. I don't know when I first started listening to it. It was probably early 80s. Radio for me, I have to talk about what it for me, changed because it gave me a different avenue and get away because I didn't have a club gig. I have to give big shout out to Stacey Hill because Stacey was definitely the pioneer that hit radio. I'm not sure. It was, might have been a few others prior to her, but I'm not sure. Stacey was kind of the biggest radio personality when it came to just hitting different spots because not only JLB played house, you had 96.3 playing house with Lisa Lisa. You had 105. whatever the radio stations were. Everybody had a little club spot, so DJs kind of hopped around. But Stacy was really the first to hit radio that I knew playing house. Now, leaving there, getting back into clubbing 10 years later, still doing clubs. I'm still popping around the city, hitting clubs, playing. It's a difference, though, you know, because I'm not getting... I was a late night girl. When I got the first gig to play at 8 o'clock, said I did. You say, what? You said 8 p.m. to 10? <laughs> but guess what? The place was packed at 8 o'clock. I couldn't believe it. I was like, okay, there's people here. Now we live in a world of like Insta gratification and going viral and Instagram followers. And um, what did it look like to be successful coming up at that time? You know, you guys hustle are different. We we didn't, ha- for me, it's overwhelming how much you guys have to do this today to stay relevant. Social media, posting and looking a certain way because it's so visual. When I came up, DJs were almost honored like a god. Not to that extent, but almost. You didn't talk to the DJ. You kind of almost was afraid. when I'll never forget, can't call you coming down the hallway, about to go to the bathroom. I literally could not breathe. And so we would watch the DJ. We didn't talk to them. So social media for me and all of a sudden the connections that people, people come to me now like we know each other. I have no idea who you are. But you could go here and see all of my information and kind of know really who I am and don't really know me. And so that's kind of scary for someone who didn't grow up in that era. But back then, no cameras, no videotapes. I miss those days when people are just in the club with nothing video themselves or the crowd. They're just fully drenched in this, to the music because you miss the great lighting show. You miss the fog machine. You miss all the other integral things that's happening in the clubs because you're now on your phone. So we didn't have any of those things. And I really wish we could ever get one good party that you guys could just go back in time and feel, even if we could just play the old school music for you, but no phones. But you guys have a great avenue because you don't have to go the same route we did. You got Instagram. You have podcasts. You can do blogs. You can do that can put you on your own little island. So when we talk about measures of success and documentation, nowadays when we Google, Hmm. we get the men. We get all these big names. We got all these interviews, all these podcasts, all these documentaries. But when it comes to the women, it's not much of that. Scarce, very scarce. So what did that look like at that time? Like, How did you know you was like that girl? By the crowd. Mm -hmm. It it wasn't really about the people because if you talk to other DJs, who was he? Who was she? But when it came to the crowd, you measured, we all, you always measure the success by how your room looked. So what do you think it takes for someone to be remembered in the history of Detroit techno? People talking about you. I would assume whatever legacy you put out. And I always say to be kind to people. 
you know, because sometimes it's not about what you've done musically, it's how you've treated others. You know, it's, it's so Detroit Techno is not just one person. It's really collaboration of so many different guys doing just different things on different labels, yet we still try to make it seem like it's only certain people who are, have created this thing. And that's the same thing with dance music here. It's not just one person, not just one female who did anything. It was a collaboration of a lot of different people who don't get named. But let's put some truth on Detroit techno because it needs to be respected because it really is something that the global world loves. It's such a travesty that we never got to meet Kayhan. Do you know anything more about her story that you can share? She just was a rebel. You know, I look back on her journey, especially during the 90s, when it wasn't that many females doing what she was doing. You know, when you started talking about record labels and creating your own sound, because that's what she did. The Dance Mania era really was birthed after kind of Kelly kind of made some of the music she was making. A little obscure, not what the typical dance music would be, just her sound. But she was a woman who her own vision is what she followed. Her own style. Some of the stuff I didn't understand. I would hear some of the music like, you're trying to figure out what, but that was who Kelly was. And she was not fearful to put that out. To lose her at 57, the way we lost her, such a sentency. You know, you you thinking, I got tomorrow to be, hang out with her, and you're gone today. And so it, may, it definitely changed my life tremendously on what I do, how I do. And it really propelled me to want to go out. The first time we went down to North Carolina, uh, North Durham, was because of Kelly. I wouldn't have traveled, but I said, why are you sitting around? You're, you don't know if tomorrow's going to be your clock ending two weeks from now. You better have more fun and do more things and live your life a whole different type of way because look how quickly it can be taken. And I think she shook us all up because we just didn't expect that, you know. But for one thing I can say about Kelly, a true warrior, a true warrior. But love, if you were in her circle of love, she loved you. And so I was blessed to have that and have such a close friendship. 35 years. So, yeah, Kelly was, for me, uh, just uh, an inspire. You know, we kind of had our own little private competition. Oh, she over there thinks she's doing something. Hold on, let me go over here do more of what she thinks she's doing. But we always kind of kept a, kept a closeness on who was doing what and motivated each other when we saw each other. So, yeah. I just want to tell you congratulations on your Spirit of Detroit Award. Thank you. And I wanted to know, going forward, in what ways do you see the industry evolving past your current and past contributions? Well, for me, just growth in music, but also to connect with you guys, the younger generation, and try to pull us all more closer together and to help in any way I can to get you guys to be able to see the world. Because Detroit is such a mega of talent. And sometimes you kind of get washed over by other people's faces or names. But you guys have a beautiful gift. When I got a chance to hear all of you guys play, come on now. you got The world needs to hear that. But we need to figure out a way to unite each other more, especially with our younger generation. And so many more women out here. That's the beauty of what I see that I love. Women are taking over. You know, it's always a turn of time. And we've had way more women than we've ever had in the industry now. And we're starting to propel ourselves in different positions that can help propel women to be better, too. Um, I have another question. Have you seen many women leave the industry? You know, like I said, back then it wasn't a lot of women. And so a few that I do know, it just was where you were. 
If the club that you were a resident DJ at closed, once again, it's very difficult to leave that spot, especially if you had a good night for someone to open their door and say, hey, you come over here and do that here. You might have the club may do it, but another DJ is not going to hire you. It's just, that's just, it's just what it is. And so not many clubs kept opening. So if, as long as you had clubs closing, you had less and less people who had opportunities to play. But it wasn't that many women that I knew of unless they just decided to get away from the business for personal reasons. You know, other than that, not really. You don't have to go into the normal, you know, find your space, which I think you guys have and do what you guys are doing. But make sure you get a night that's your night. We want to give a big thank you to DJ Scent for sitting down with us and just really opening up about her experiences and providing us some insight. Our next guest almost needs no introduction, but we really want to highlight her work with Women on Wax, a collective and label she founded in the mid-90s, championing artists such as Laura Endorf, Magda, and Serena Tyler. Women on Wax created space and opportunities for emerging DJs in the city, really setting the stage for Blueprint 30 years later. Over the last 10 years, DJ Minx has reached a new height in her career, touring extensively overseas, releasing new music, and handling it all with grace. Can we expound a little bit about when you did get into the music? What was it like coming into those spaces as a Black woman? I must say that I was already grown Mm -hmm. when I got to the music Mm -hmm. because I didn't like it. I didn't like techno and house music because it it was so, I felt it was a bunch of rattly noise. So I wasn't very interested at all. Always playing records, 45s at home or listening to music when my parents played it. And this was always in the evenings at home. Not that I ever thought that I would be DJing or anything like that. I just had a love for the music. See, the first place I went was the Music Institute. So that was a night ran by, first of all, the the person that ran it, his name was Frank. Frank is a black man from Detroit. After going to the club a few times, I saw the crowd, which was consistent of a mix, blacks, whites, different races. Getting into the music and becoming a DJ is when I realized that there were no black women really. Like, of course, I knew Kay Hand and I knew Stacey Hale. I did not know of Serena Tyler yet because she sat in the shadows for the most part. There was also DJ Scent that I had not met. So just mainly knowing Kelly and Stacy and knowing that they had a queer lifestyle, I didn't see anyone straight on the scene that was a DJ. So me becoming a DJ was almost threatening to Black women. Some of the gentlemen couldn't believe I was a DJ. They would laugh at it, like, ha ha, you're a DJ. And the difference in me and the other DJs that were, you know, of the moment, I would just glam up because I wanted to stand out. 
I always thought to myself, what am I going to do to stand out from the rest? So I would glam out. I mean, I'm putting on rhinestones, big earrings, chunk dresses, heels. Every time I step out, I was just killing them. Not that my feet wasn't hurting, but <laughs> I, I was, you know, just standing out differently. I'm going to say that it was something that was intimidating to people. The reason that they had to think of all these reasons to dislike me or believe that I was an actual DJ. I'm not going to say I didn't pay any attention because it affected me in a big way. Because I was totally like, I don't want to, I don't want to be a DJ. I think I'll just, you know, leave this. And my mentor, Jerry, his name is Gerald James. Gerald was a school teacher here. He taught at Catherine Academy, I think it's an all-girls school. And he was very well-spoken and he'd always go, no, you are going to continue to be a DJ because that was cut out for you. I'm like, Jerry, no, hell no, I'm not doing it. Oh, yes, you're going to do it. (laughs) And I would scoff at him every time, but he kept me on it. He kept telling me, this is meant for you to do. So you need to overcome all of the BS that people are putting out there. When I was invited to play the first party, which was a party at this place called a Lofts on Illinois, this guy named Bruce Bailey. I used to always go to Bruce's house because Jerry, me, and another gentleman named Dwayne, we delivered records. We had this distribution company. So we would deliver records to DJ's houses. This was our little portable store. Wow. And we'd always go to Bruce's house, and Bruce had a house full of people. Every time we went, I'm introvert, I'm shy, I would never talk. But I'd already learned how to DJ, and we had these little cars that we drew up and made, DJ Minks. So one day I had to go and deliver cards, I'm sorry, records on my own because nobody was available. I had to go to Bruce's house. I went in Bruce's house, and it was just him and looked like maybe two other people. So I gave him his records, we counted everything out, and he's like, hey, Hey, uh, you got a card or something? I said, yeah, sure. So I gave him a card, the one we had drawn on. The Eye of Ra was on it. It's pink. He said, well, you a DJ? I said confidently, yes, I am. He said, oh, thinking that was the last of it. He's like, why don't you come play at the club tonight? I was like, oh, where's your club? And he told me. I was like, okay, what time? He said, come early. Come come like 9 o'clock. I said, okay, great. I will be there. So I get in the car and I'm screaming like, why did you even tell him you're a DJ? And I'm just, you know, done because I knew that I didn't want to, I never played out anywhere. I only played in my apartment. I had an apartment downtown. I never played out and I wasn't ready. So a few, uh, well, of course, the mentor, Jerry, I call him, Jerry, let me tell you what happened. He said, oh my God, do you know what that means? I said, well, not what? So that means that we're going to the club tonight. Let's posse up. So we all get to the entrance of the club, and there's two ladies at the front. And I said, hi, here I'm DJ for the night. And one of the ladies frowned her, turned her nose up, and the other one was like, DJ? And I said, yes. Mm-hmm. And she said, what's your name? And I said, I'm DJ Meeks. The girl's like, oh, we don't see you on here. And I said, yeah, I know. It's because Bruce asked me to come. Yeah, I just was there to see him a few hours. No, we don't see you on here. And I said, okay, let's go. And I turned around and Jerry's like, we're not going anywhere. 
you're DJing tonight. So I turned back to the ladies and I said, Bruce asked me to come play. Well, we don't see you on here. You're not getting in. I said, okay, guys, let's go. And then everybody's like, nope, we're not going anywhere. Because I'm six foot one. One of my friends is taller than me. She was like, girl, look, Heffa, we're not going nowhere. I said, y'all, I just want to go. Let's just leave. And everybody's standing like with their arms folded, blocking, so I can't get out. So I turned back to the ladies. I said, Bruce asked me to come. It was short notice. And he asked me to come play a set. And the other one stood behind one of them. Of course, I know their names. I'm not going to say it. Stood behind the other girl. And she's like, you're not getting in here because we don't have you. So then a gentleman came from the, the side door. And he was like, Minx. Now, nobody knew my name. But this guy did. I think he was in the basement with Bruce. But again, I, wouldn't, I didn't see anybody. This was Buzz Gory. And he said, where are you going? And I said, the ladies wouldn't let me in. And he's fussing at him. He's like, she has a bag of records. That's not a purse. Come in here. Are they with you? I said, yes. We go into the club. It's already packed full of people. So I'm nervous, nervous. Now, it's a difference in pressing a button on the MP3 to start your track and playing some vinyl. <laughs> My God, my hand was shaking. But anyway, I went up to the booth. It's, you know, up on another level. So you see down into the dance floor. So I go there and I'm just waiting to play. And it's 99% guys in the booth. And I had on the dress and I was so nervous and I was standing there and Bruce was like, hey, thank you for coming. And, you know, you, you ready to play? I was like, yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm flipping through my records or whatever. He's like, well, when you're ready, you can come on. So a few minutes went by and I started playing my tracks. Dead silence in the club. Not only silence, because I didn't know about the transitioning from the last DJ to keep the music going. It's people, everyone looked up at me to see the reason the music had 100% stopped. And I put the needle down. What track was it, if you don't mind me? Asking? This was a robot's track, uh, Definitive Recordings. It's an orange and black label, and it's something robots. I can't remember the first word of it, but it had a sample of the Blackbirds, Rock Creek Park in it. Mm. And it was it was housed up. This track is nice. So I put it on, and everybody's looking, and I was just standing there. And I played the track, and they're just looking at me. And then they started bobbing their head a bit. So I said to myself, okay, at this point, I am the entire center of attention. So I started mixing tracks. Again, I wasn't playing tracks for three to five minutes because that's not how I taught myself. Mm -hmm. I play a track, minute and a half, maybe two, and I'm on to the next. And I didn't slam tracks. I rode each track. I, kept, I would ride into the next one. And they were screaming and dancing and jumping. And people started coming to the booth. Two people that came to the booth were surprising because it was those two ladies from the front door. Mm. Girl, we love you. Oh, my God, girl, you bad. <laughs> Hugging me and like, oh, he's so sorry. We didn't know. Yeah, they're my friends to this day. But... Um, <laughs> And what year was this? This was like 89, mm -hmm. 1989, yeah. That was 
part of my intro to DJing, but I caught hell. And I'm telling you, I caught hell. These people always gave me a hard time. I can't believe you playing like this. Okay? Like offended. I'm like, come on now. Look, this is just the way it is. This is how I play. This is how I learned how to play. Guys, like, if you, you know, asking for sexual favors, if you want to play this, whatever, blah, 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 I can get you in there if you blah, 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 blah. Mm. And right out the gate with that, I would laugh at them. Excuse me. My confidence level started to go up. It took a minute. I was like, okay. I used to be like, could you please leave me alone? And I started going, how about I make you do something for me? Flip the game, change it all. I started to make people respect me. And this is how I got to the point of doing women on wax Mm -hmm. and mentoring women. Because, and I mean, they would find my numbers. This is when you can find people's numbers in the phone book. They started calling me from all points of the U.S. My name is, tell me their name. I'm wondering if you can help me because I'd like to play blah, 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 but I'm being disrespected. I don't know how the story got out there, but it did. So I started mentoring over the phone. Then I started gathering women after I threw a party called Women on Wax. And I called it that because Wax Records, that's all we played. You playing in the house, why don't you come out? I'm about to have a party with all women. And the girls were like, what? Are we going to be able to do Yes, we are doing it. I already had a Monday night at this place on Michigan Avenue called the Parabox Cafe. It's across the street from where that White Castle is, like on the corner down the street from the old Tiger Stadium. So it's like Michigan and Trumbull area around there. I had Monday nights. And I would always have, you know, guests that would come out. Mike Huckabee would play for me and D. Wynn, Eddie Folks. And I specifically said this one night, I knew enough girls for us to have a night. So it's like five girls I invited. Magda, Jennifer Sherry. Jennifer brought her to my house one night and said she wants to be a part of Women on Wax. She wants you to mentor her. And she would never look at me. She'd always look down. I was like, I'm shy. I'm shy. I was like, girl, look, you put those records on. Play those records. Don't worry about me. I'm a person just like you. We got tight, tight to this day. Jaguar, the Jaguar was her DJ name. But her name is Corey Inyard. And Corey was shy, too. And she's like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready. I was like, you ready? You're ready. Yeah. And so she started with me as well. I brought Lady D from Chicago. A lot of people started getting wind of me and asking me to help them. So I formed that group, Women on Wax, telling them how they could earn respect. Don't dress down. Glam out. Stand out. Don't be like everybody else. You don't have to wear jeans, T-shirt, You can be sexy, but respect yourself. What were you doing in between the time that you started DJing and you founded Women on Wax? Well, first of all, I worked at General Motors. I was an IT manager, project manager, IT manager. So that was my regular job. So I wasn't doing DJing full time until one day Kevin Saunderson, my brother, 
told his agents in Europe about me. And he said, you need to send them a cassette. And I said, okay. He's like, send them a cassette, send them a mix. And I sent them a mix. And they called me at work one day, the agents. Hello, do you speak to DJ Manx? Now they're calling me a GM. I said, hello? <laughs> I'm whispering like somebody can hear. I said, hello? I, uh, we were calling for DJ Manx. I said, speaking? Hi, hold on. We need you to hear something. And so I'm listening, and it's music. Okay. It was two women, and they're on the speakerphone, apparently. They said, do you know what this is? And I said, no. That's your mix. That is you mixing like this. And I said, yeah, yeah, you got the mix, huh? Oh, my God, this is so good. I said, well, thank you. Thank you. We would like to talk to you more. How would you like to start on tours? I said, excuse me? And I think within the next two months, I was touring. Big time. I didn't think about a record label. I didn't think about music production. I was just DJing. I was doing these parties, like one-offs here and there in Detroit. And I started seeing Kenny, Moody Man. I'd be playing and I'd see him. You know, he had those round glass like prints. It's just standing there watching me. I did another party. Kenny was there looking at me. And I was like, hey. Nod his head, stay for my set. By the time I'm off the stage, he would be gone. He did it three times. I played this party at the State Theater, and he was right in the front. And I just smiled at him during my set. And when I got done playing, he was still there. I said, Kenny, I have seen you. He said, I know, baby. I know you see me. You ready? I said, ready? Yeah, you ready? I said, ready for what? You ready to start this record label? I said, no. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. I've been watching you. You're ready to start your label. He said, this is what I want you to do. And he wrote on the record, on the sleeve. First thing was, and he's talking while he's writing, make me four tracks. I'm going to give you a couple of weeks on that. Excuse me, a couple of weeks. Wait a minute. I was like, oh, I'm going to give you a couple of weeks. Make me four tracks. Call Tracy. Tracy works for me. She runs Mahogany. When you finish those tracks, call me or she'll let me know. I want to hear them and we're going to put them out. Think of your label name and we're going to start your label. So I'm sitting there holding this piece of vinyl, looking at it going, oh, this is crazy. And I called my friend the next morning, Serena Tyler. Serena's another mentor. Serena has a very calming voice as well. Baby. Now, what did, what did he want you to do? I said, he wants me to produce four tracks so that I can start a record label. He's like, ooh, that's nice, real nice. And he said he'd help me pay for the first four releases. He's like, we're going to pay for everything. Don't worry about that. We're going to send it to Archie. We're going to have your stuff pressed. We're going to get your labels done. You just make the music. And she said, well, you need to come over so I can show you how to produce. So we started working on the tracks. It took a while, but we finished them. I did. So I called Tracy, and she's like, all right, let me tell Kenny. So I gave him the tracks. Call me back. Oh, oh, girl, oh, these good. These good. Mm, you did good. You say, what? You don't know how to, what? You don't know how to produce. Okay. He said, he's good. Now, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have him press the Archer, 
and we're going to do everything for you. We're going to design the label and all of that. Don't worry about that. Start on the next ones. I said, the next what? Start on four more tracks. He said, consistency. You got to stay consistent, baby. You got to stay. You got to stay in these people's faces. I said, okay. He had these pressed, distributed, everything. He did everything. And I got a call from a distribution. Someone wanted to license it immediately. So I did the next slew. This is the one where I had a walk in the park in it. That's that track I made in 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. And to this day, that's the biggest thing that I've ever done. It's still, still royalties. Thanks to Richie Houghton. Richie helped me with that one. Because someone played it overseas, a gentleman named Ricardo Villalobos played it. Mm. And he said, he stood over him and said, man, what the hell is this track? And he said he saw my logo on it. He was like, wait a minute, that's my girl from Detroit. And Tim Price was Richie's manager. Tim called me. He said, Minx, Richie wants to meet you about your track. I said, what track? He said, I don't, I don't know. It's one of the tracks you made. He wants to see you. So on one side, it was a walk in the park. On the other side, it was God House. That was a track I did with Diamond Dancer. So a couple weeks later, Tim called me. He was like, Minx, we are headed to Toronto. After that, Richie wants to come and meet you in Detroit. Night before he called, he said, Richie broke his foot. And Richie was in the background screaming, I broke my foot, but I'm still coming to see you. I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm sorry. He said, I feel it's okay. I'll be fine. He said, but we want to see you tomorrow. So we set it up. It was a Monday. Richie said, this track that you have put out could be one of the best things ever. I said, which track is it? He said, it's called Walk in the Park. He said, I want to help you up your distribution because a lot of people don't know about it. We found this in a record store in Europe. He said, I bought all the rest of the copies out of the store. I want to help you with distribution. I want to get you repressed, and I want to re-release it. He said, we're going to drop a contract. And we did. And I was at Miami Music Winter Music Conference, and I got a call. Me and my friends were just about to go to a party. And a gentleman called me, He's and he says, hi, this is, I forgot his name, from South Africa. And I said, Hi. We would like to license the track that's playing right now. I said, I'm in the hotel, so I don't know which track. He said, it's, someone asked me to call you because there's a track playing that they want to license. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't help you because I don't know. He said, well, it's got a lot of bass. And I was like, well, I don't know if it's a walk in the park, but if it is, we're going to have to talk to Minus about that because now it's going to be licensed to them. And he said, we'll work it out. They licensed it from Minus. The DJ's name is DJ Fresh from South Africa. So it was just, it was getting all over everywhere. Not to mention one day I met someone and this guy said, is your name DJ Minx? And I said, yes. He said, man, we're so sick of hearing that record walk in the park on the radio. I said, bad for you, good for me. <laughs> yeah, very unexpected how that went about. But Moody Man is the reason for the label, because I would have never thought to do a record label. He's all about supporting of Black women. He will tell you to your face, I love Black women and I love supporting Black women. You got a dream, I got you. 
thousands of people out there. He'll get on the microphone. You know, he talks every time. Let me tell y'all something about this one here. This is my girl right here. Y'all respect her. Yeah, shout out to Moody Man. That's an incredible story. Someone believing in you like that to give you that type of opportunity, you know, makes the world a difference. Like, that's incredible. Yes, I'm very thankful for him. Trust me. And then what year did the re-release happen for A Walk in the Park? I think it was 2003 because I initially put it out 2002. And then between three and four is when Minus did it. Mm-hmm. And I recently did another set of remixes. You'll still be making remixes to this And day. people are very aware of this track. Um, and I had a Moody Man. My last release last month, month and a half ago, was Moody Man's release. He just did a Walk in the Park remix, was sealed it. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, baby, I'm doing this for you. I will do this for you. Wow. Yeah. Humbles my heart, I'll tell you. So when you say 2003, <laughs> we are now in the year of 2023. Right. You were putting all that work in when there was no social media. A lot of your work was like community-based, word of mouth with people you knew you could call up on the phone. So in the year of 2023, where everything is so digital and instant, and did you notice a switch in your workflow or in the way you had to navigate? Well, I was still working at GM in 2019. They said they were doing some cuts and I cleaned up my desk and said, to my booking agent, if they pick me, you better get ready because I'm not looking back. It's all about the music. I said, we going. And I was sitting at my desk all day and people were sad that they were being let go, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's a sad situation. I was too. But I was just like, I'm about to be full time on the DJ tip. So that was the beginning of looking at things differently. Once I switched out my booking agent, which was right at the, right before the pandemic, I must have gotten this booking agent like three weeks before the shutdown. And they said, well, Minx, we're not able to do anything right now. We'll have to pick it up after the pandemic. And they started canceling everything. That's when I had my first set with Honey Dijon, and I really always wanted to play with her. Mm-hmm. It was in New York. They canceled that. And I think like four or five other parties I had, we had to cancel everything. So I was thinking that that was going to be the beginning of the big stages for me, but it just wasn't going to happen because of the pandemic. And then we didn't know what was going to happen anyway, because we didn't know what the future after the shutdown was going to look like. Yet after the shutdown, it's almost like people wanted to breathe and everything started flourishing, getting huge. Wow. The recognition was there. They're starting to see the Black people. They're starting to see the Black women. They're starting to put the two together, which is a Black woman of techno from Detroit. That was just the layer needed to get me pole vaulted onto those big stages. So then I find myself headlining. And the followers switched out for me. The people following me and listening to me switched. Like, I have a small amount of Black people that see me play. But the music I play is different. 
it's not soulful, but it's four on the floor and it's like a harder house. So I draw all types of people now, all kinds. And then after I came out, that was really what sealed the deal because then you have this entire community of people that look at you like you are on a pedestal and have become their mother. Like it became automatic love. No matter where I go, will be people from the LGBTQ plus community right there. Thank you for being here for us. That's one thing they say to me a whole lot. Thank you for being here for us. The LGBTQ plus community, the black people, the white people, the Asians, the people from all nationalities coming out to dance in one place is what I've always wanted. And that was the first thing I saw when I used to go to the music Institute, full circle. You know, my daughters always say, when I am in a certain position, I am always so calm and professional. That's something that I've always been, and I hold true to that. One thing to remember that when you're in a profession of this nature, or any for that matter, watch what you say. Watch what you do. How you treat people makes a big difference. What you post on social media means a whole lot. And I chose to be nice to the people that dismissed me. Never speaking ill of anyone that they know of. And just trying to keep it real. That goes a long way. Every little bit that I've had to deal with, I've decided to deal with with it with class. That's the best way to be. I make sure I pay homage to whomever has been there. Like I spoke about Serena Tyler, nothing but respect. The people that helped me along the way, I will never forget. If they need anything, I'm right here. Uh, Serena's coming over Monday. Anyone that was there I have a high level of respect for. I'm still myself. I tell people all the time, I am always going to be me. But I just did not think it would get to this point. It's not that I was being pessimistic, not at all. It's just that I had been into this music for so many decades and nothing really happening. I just didn't see it as happening. You know, hearing somebody say, like, you know, I didn't anticipate this happening because I'm looking at you from my perspective and just like, wow, you know, DJ Meeks. But hearing you say that, it, it feels very just like good. Like, you know, it gets real easy to get at this stage to get caught up in well, where is this going to go? You're stressing yourself out. I need to be booked and be doing this. I need to be constantly moving, moving, moving. It's, it's a thing of having people that believe in you as much as you believe in yourself if not more. If you've got people backing you that believe in you, that makes all the difference in the world. I have what I call right now the dream team. My team is the bomb. No joke. No joke whatsoever. And I also saw that you received the Spirit of Detroit Award, and I just want to say congratulations on that note. How does that make you feel, especially knowing that when you look back on the timeline 
And when you bring up Detroit Techno, you get mostly, you know, the Belleville Three, the big names. You don't really hear about any of the women that we talked about today until now in the future, we got DJ Meeks. And I want to know for you, what does it look like transcending these, like the success that you have? Like, do you ever get to a point where you're like, this is it? Or like, what's next? After so long of just putting in a work, do you ever just say, you know what, I'm, I'm done. I don't kick my foot. You know, sometimes I might think that, but it's so much to be done. Mm-hmm. And that is because, like the first thing you said, with you being Black and from Detroit, that in and of itself is huge. That's the basis of it all. But what you do with that makes a big difference. Are you just going to just stay in one position and not move? Or are you going to grow from this nucleus of what you've already got? I'm in it to grow. So I don't want to sit in one position and just say, okay, this is it. I'm good. Oh, because my mom, it'll be a year and a month or a few weeks that she passed. Oh, every time I say that, it's just so, oh, that's hard. But she said, you'd better do this for as long as you can. You healthy. That's what I saw. You healthy. You vegan. So you go on and do this as long as you can. Yeah, because I was just like, Mom, but how can it just now start kicking off? And she's like, that don't matter. Mm-hmm. Obviously, somebody wants you to play, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, you do this as long as you can move. Don't stop. So that, I always hear that. I always hear that. I feel like techno is the beginning. When you tell people you're from Detroit, it's like, whoa, you're from Detroit? That speaks volumes. So Detroit Techno is the beginning of the musical love that we share around the world. The blackness of it all. All right, y'all. That's our time. Thank you to our guests, DJ Meeks and DJ Scent, for sitting down with us for this segment. Thank you to our writer and researcher, Crystal Miner, our consultant, Mr. John Collins, and as well as Connor Anderson over at WDET. Special gratitude to Miss Kelly Hand for her contributions to Detroit dance music. May she be remembered all over the world. And this has been a Blueprint production brought to you from somewhere in Detroit. Till next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to the first of our three-part series, Women on Wax, an alternative history of techno in Detroit. Many thanks to the team at Blueprint for producing this episode, Alana Greenlee, Janice Nelson, and Crystal Mjoner. John Collins and Connor Anderson provided consulting help. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please subscribe to the RA Exchange wherever you listen to podcasts and listen to our full archive of episodes on SoundCloud at ra-exchange or online at ra.co. Until next time, take care.